Welcome to another episode of the LeafCast. Takes by Leaf for Leaf. Yo, as always, I appreciate you tuning in. You could be doing anything in the world right now, but you choose to rock with me. So I appreciate that. It's been a tough 2020 set aside the pandemic and the economic meltdown and everything just in terms of you know people passing away notable people passing away uh in the news chadwick boseman the uh from black panther fame you may know him from black panther fame i know him as the black dude who plays every significant historical black dude in a movie in terms of historical significant black dudes it's basically Chadwick Boseman. He played James Brown, which actually did a great job playing James Brown. I believe he played Jackie Robinson. Um, well, he did play. He's played just you know he did he played Thurgood Marshall. You know, if you look at Thurgood Marshall, if anybody recalls what Thurgood Marshall looks like, uh, somewhat portly, light-skinned man, and Chadwick uh, Bo- Boseman was able to pull that performance off. Actually, it was actually a pretty good movie. Thurgood, if you get a chance, check it out. Um, but a lot of people know him from Black Panther. Um, you know, I thought Black Panther was a good movie. I never thought it was a great movie. I think some people thought about, you know, this is the greatest movie ever. I think um, some of the popularity of Black Panther is just because people had never seen a black man in that space. And it was a well-done, you know, the, the story was well done. But, you know, I don't want to sit around and say it's the fucking Godfather or anything like that. It was a good movie, but, you know, it is what it is. Anyways, R.I.B. Uh, Mr. Bozeman. And to the extent that you, if you, anyone in the audience has not gotten a colonoscopy, please go out and get one. Uh, you know, as you get into your 40s, these are things that need to be done. Anyways, R.I.P. to Chadwick. But the person who really hurt my heart... um to hear that they had passed away was Coach John Thompson. Uh, John Thompson was the longtime coach of the Georgetown Hoyers. And depending upon when you grew up, you know, your reflection or your recollection of him is dramatically different. So, for instance, <coughs> excuse me, you may remember him from, hey, he's the guy who coached Allen Iverson. Or you remember him, hey, he's the guy who used to, you know, do the play-by-play on TNT. But I remember him, you know, pre-Allen Iverson. I remember him in the 80s coaching Georgetown. (coughs) And (coughs) basketball, college basketball, is dramatically different in the 80s than it is now in many different ways but in one of the ways it was dramatically different number one there was predominantly white coaches you know i would still argue there's still predominantly white coaches now but it's literally very few african-american coach uh, coaches in college basketball in the 80s and there was more of a mix of white players on the team. So you probably saw more white guys on the team. Matter of fact, I know you did. You probably saw more white guys, you know, playing college basketball in the 80s 
in the late late 80s, early 90s than you ever see now in college basketball or the pros. And the other thing that was interesting about college basketball in that time period, late 80s, mid to late 80s, is that it was basically unheard of for a guy to go, you know, to let alone go from high school to the pros. That was not allowed. But it was unheard of from a guy to go, you know, like freshman year, leave sophomore year. I believe Jordan left after he was a junior. So this is pre that, you know, pretty much it was four years. And one of the things that took place during that time period was that the Big East, you know, had a TV contract where they would show those games all up and down the East Coast. So if you lived, you know, in the East Coast area, you know, you were able, you grew up watching Big East basketball. And if you grew up watching Big East basketball, then you grew up watching John Thompson. And, you know, even if you were not a sports fan per se, there was something about those Hoyas teams so much so that, you know, I grew up in D.C. And I remember thinking for a significant period of time, like, you know, Georgetown was like the equivalent of like a Howard. It was like an historically black college because there was it was all black team. You know, I think, you know, eventually you might let one white guy on the team. But it was like all black team, so much so like, you know, they didn't, you know, they would, they would they, reporters would ask questions, you know, like, well, why is there no white guys on the team? You know, he's just racist. There's no white guys. There's no, there's a bunch of brothers. And, you know, in that time period, even though all, all the teams were, you know, integrated, they were black players and all the teams in the Big East, you know, when you would go into these arenas, you know, you know Boston College or, you know, these arenas, you know, you know, I recall Providence, you know, when uh, when uh, Patrick Ewing played, they would throw, you know, banana peels onto the court, you know, make monkey sounds. It was, this was, you know, it was the 80s. <laughs> so, but what was striking about a John Thompson team, number one, it was a six foot nine, you know, huge black man. And, you know, all black team. And these guys played defense in a way that you had never seen before. So it was like almost every play, if you watched a Georgetown game, was like a fight. And if you, if you know, the, if the opposing team, if you were not ready for the fight, I mean, they'd start, you know, full court press and it'd be, you know, just up close guard you from the beginning to the end of the game, nonstop. And, you know, when they had Patrick Ewing, the intimidation was that just worse is Patrick Ewing was this kind of defensive force you know, much more known for his defense in college than he ever was in the pros. But long and short, John Thompson was the uh, first coach, first black coach to win an NCAA tournament, I mean, championship. You know, broke a lot of barriers for allowing other black coaches to get access, to get into the league. Um, you know, I, I think the story that's so interesting, as much as people, you know, remember him from Allen Iverson, you remember he had Patrick Ewing, Dikembe Mutombo, you know, he had uh, Alonzo Mourning. Those are just the big men. We're not talking about, you know, Reggie uh, Reggie Williams. You know, uh, it's just just a litany of players that came through the Georgetown program. But, you know, again, I just want to try to, it's, it's hard for some of the younger listeners in the audience really to understand that, you know, when I was growing up outside of my dad, you know, there was no 
stronger male figure than I was exposed to than John Thompson stalking the sidelines at a Hoya game, talking shit to the ref, talking shit to the other coaches. I remember it was so bad one time, Rick Pitino, you know, got into, you know, a yelling match with John Thompson. He, just, you know, gets up in the front and John Thompson says, like, I'm not afraid of you. And you almost see John Thompson laugh because it's like, you know, for you to have to acknowledge that you're not afraid pretty much indicates that you are afraid. But anyways, it's sad to see this man die. Uh, it's sad for anyone to pass, but, you know, it really hurts my heart. Uh, it, it brings me back to a time to think about when the plight of the black athlete was not as easy as it is today. You know, college coaches have much more control over the plight. This is like the Bobby Knight era, you know, of coaching. So it was a much different, you know, type of uh, personalities that these head coaches took on. And one of the things that was always so, you know, remarkable about John Thompson was just, uh, you know, just the way that he appeared to obviously be hard on his team, but also to care about these guys. So, you know, just in terms of just, you know, there's the, the famous, so they were, Georgetown was playing North Carolina in the final four in championship game. And the first time they got to that game, the point guard, you know, at the end of the game, inexplicably passes the ball to James Worthy, who obviously does not play for Georgetown. He plays for North Carolina. He took the ball, took the ball from him, scored. And that's the end of the game. He lost the game. Lost. And, you know, the one of the hallmark, you know, pictures of John Thompson is him embracing the player after he is, you know, again, just shitted on himself in national television news. <laughs> and just tell him, like, hey, man, it's all right. And the next year, they went out, got the title at the end of the game, hugged the same kid. So, you know, it wasn't like he was just a hard ass, just being a hard ass, also had a heart, but, you know, a, a tremendous figure, especially in D.C. So I want to tell this one story because always, it always comes to mind as I think about John Thompson. So the one story is obviously him hugging the player after making this you know horrible mistake on the worst stage ever. But the other you know, story about John Thompson Lisa stuck out to me is the story of Rayful Edmonds. Um, Rayful Edmonds was pretty much the biggest drug dealer in the 1980s. <laughs> so this is a guy who literally was credited for introducing crack cocaine to the D.C. streets. His organization generated an estimated $300 million a year at the height of its reign. And again, we're talking about the 80s. So just imagine $300 million a year in the 80s. So this dude, like everybody else, you know, was a huge Georgetown fan. Georgetown, like Georgetown, you know, the sneakers, the gear, everything took off after it really became this kind of super pro-black team, unbeknownst to the uh, Jesuit priest who founded the school that somehow it would be known as such. But he really put Georgetown on the map in a way that I don't even know if Georgetown anticipated, but let alone it was on the map. So Rayful Edmonds, you know, huge drug dealer, and, you know, like everybody else, he loves the Hoyas. So he would regularly attend games, and he'd sit courtside, you know, and then... <laughs> You know, he was hanging out. That was like, this was boys. 
So eventually, it got too hot. So there used to be a uh, used to be this club called Chapter Eleven, or was it Chapter Thirteen? I don't know. Chapter Eleven, Chapter Thirteen. But it was it was it was nightclub in D.C. You know, I'm not that old. I never attended this place, but it was a nightclub in D.C. And it was basically frequented by Rayful Edmonds and his boys and a couple of the, you know, the uh, players for Georgetown uh, started were showing up at the club. So, again, it wasn't like Rayful Edmonds is trying to, like, give, like, Alonzo Mourning cocaine. He just wants to hang out with Alonzo Mourning because Alonzo Mourning is the star player at Georgetown. You know, John Thompson hears about this shit and is like, no, 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 we, we can't do this. So he invites Rayful Edmonds, which is the, you know, again, most powerful drug dealer in D.C. to his office at Georgetown. So again, just imagine what the priests thought if they knew that this shit happened. So, you know, it, it, <laughs> so he invites him in, sits him down, and this is in the words of Thompson. John Thompson told ABC News that he summoned the alleged drug dealer, Rayful Edmonds III, after learning that many of his players were frequentizing his club, where students alleged, allegedly hung out with the drug dealers. I sent word out on the streets that I'd like to talk to him, Thompson said. It was almost a tacit agreement. You do me a favor. If you see anything going on out there, use whatever resources you have to stop it from happening. So basically... He sits down and tells Rayful, and we can't handle none of the bullshit. And Rayful acquiesces and, you know, he leaves these dudes alone. But you just imagine, you know, how many coaches would have a sit down in his office with the biggest drug dealer, or coke dealer, you know, in their city. <laughs> you know, just, just, just imagine... You know, it, it, this is a time, you know, the Lou Carnesecas, the Raleigh Massiminos, the Rick Patinos, you know, any of these motherfuckers, you know, sitting down with the, the biggest drug dealer in their location or the biggest mobster or whatever city they're in, you know, and saying to this dude, look, this is the way it's going to go. But, you know, that was John Thompson. So sad to see him go but more sadder is just to you know you reflect on it not only do you reflect on john thompson but you know i grew up watching those games so you need to grow up with your dad you know you're watching those games or you need to grow up and watching them with your family and because it was this all black team versus these integrated teams it took a life of its own and the rooting that you had on its own and somewhat similar at least in my mind i remember the early you know, the Lakers versus Celtics, for those of you who are, you know, really young, used to be this guy called Magic Johnson. <laughs> he played for the Lakers. And there was a white guy called Larry Bird, played for the Celtics, uh, two pretty good basketball players. And it really had this kind of racial component to it in terms of how you cheered for the games. And that's just kind of how I rocked with, you know, John Thompson and, and the Hoyers. So early, you know, before there was, a, you know, a Wakanda or Black Panther, you know, there was a John Thompson, you know, putting it down in real time, uh, doing his thing. So much respect to him. So not only, you know, is it sad, you see, you know, guys that you considered, you know, icons, heroes passing away, but you still got to navigate the everyday bullshit. So I got some... Feedback, so I'm going to make sure that I say this properly. It's not Kenneshaw. I believe I was pronouncing Kenneshaw 
Wisconsin. It's Kenosha, Wisconsin. So, Kenosha. Big ups to Kenosha. First off, one of the things I want to just point out about Jacob Blake, and I want to make sure people, because this is how stories get conflated and shits and stuff, especially for white people. Because white people want to find an excuse. Like the black guy, he had it coming to him. He had it coming to him. Right? Something to justify the treatment of a black man. Number one, Jacob Blake did not have a knife on his person. Number two, Jacob Blake got shot seven times in the back. Number three, Jacob Blake, I believe, was at the scene or where the police uh, were summoned to who's trying to break up a dispute. Jacob Blake was not protesting. I don't even know what political persuasion Jacob Blake was. He could have been Republican for all we know. But he wasn't protesting a thing. He was merely a black man living in Kenosha. And he was literally, a, they, they tried to murder him. There's no other way to put it. So, as always, there's this kind of spin, hey, he was a bad guy, hey, he had police warrants, and it's like, you know, it doesn't matter it does. It, you don't. We don't need to have discussions about his character, because having any discussion about his character somehow creates the impression that that has any relationship to the fact that he got shot seven times in the back. But what you've been hearing so just recall if you, if you listen to other podcasts i don't want to belabor the point but the reality is while we can say a lot of things about donald trump at a certain point in time even he can understand when he's got a losing hand when your favorability rate so they said going into the convention his favorability rating was at 32% Coming out of convention was at 31. <laughs> so that's like people, people, people turned it on, said, what the fuck is this? And it was like, ah, I don't really like it. So this has been this, you, it's been a steady drumbeat of I'm going to protect you from riots in the street. Weak democratic governors and mayors can't do it, but I can do it. And Joe Biden is a socialist and he wants to defund the police. So, number one, it's the, the, the argument in and of itself is amazing because it assumes that people are just rioting inherently. Like they just woke up or they decided by osmosis to start rioting. Hey, let's riot today. Let's continue to riot. Like, there's nothing that has triggered any of these activities. Perhaps the lack of jobs, the absence of health care. None of these things are happening. 
If you're telling people that they have to quarantine and you're stuck in an apartment with multiple folk, then you might want to go outside. If you're stuck in an apartment and you're watching on television black men being assassinated, hey, you might want to take to the streets. If you're frustrated in terms of how you've been treated, your family members have been treated, or you're just fucking frustrated, hey, you may want to take to the streets. Now, I'm not here as a proponent for looting. I'm not here as a proponent for violence. But I do want to say this, twofold. You did notice when motherfuckers started breaking shit that white people started to pay attention. So keep that in mind. Number two, I understand and I agree with the concept of peaceful protests. But I think sometimes people misinterpret what peaceful protest has meant. So if you think about the 60s and the civil rights movement, what's the one thing that you, the one word that is not peaceful protests? Yeah, but I would argue there's nothing peaceful about a motherfucker hosing you down with a fire hose. There's nothing peaceful about dogs fucking attacking you. There's nothing peaceful about being hit with a police baton. None of these things are peaceful. And in fact, that violence shown on television seized on white guilt and white people eventually said, hey, maybe this isn't cool. Hey, maybe we shouldn't treat black folk like this. Or at least when they don't live around So, again, Donald Trump is not stupid. He understands what's going on. So this is the cards that he's going to play, which is the world is on fire and only me, Donald Trump, only I can save you. So they've now started to do this weird thing where we start to like, we start with what we think is, I think everybody would think is like common sense, a position that we can agree with. Like, hey, murder's not cool, right? Typically, if you were to poll any person, irrespective of their political beliefs, they would say, hey, homicide, not cool. But apparently now, for Mr. Kyle Rittenhouse, Certain motherfuckers, and what I mean certain motherfuckers, I mean white Republicans, are now saying that he's a hero. So, I don't, I mean, why? I don't even, like, that's amazing. It's amazing that this dude, who we can all acknowledge, we saw on film murder two people, and I believe they were white. that somehow he is a hero because he traveled from Illinois along with a pack of crazy militia motherfuckers to somehow protect a gas station. So one of the things they showed, they showed the video take is again, these motherfuckers love attention. Why else would you drive from Illinois to fucking Kenosha? 
it's attention. You know, he's live streaming stuff, and hey, we're gonna we're gonna protect the gas station. But I don't believe that he came down premeditated that he was gonna kill somebody. I think that you know, once you get down there and you're walking around with your long rifle, and you know, you you starting to feel good about yourself. Somebody says something, and the next thing you know, yeah, and then you start starts letting off shots. And then you run like a coward. And then when they try to catch up with you, you fall on the ground, you kill a couple guys. At least that's the way that I took it. So the White House announced that Trump would hold a late afternoon news conference on Monday, and he is planning a highly anticipated visit to Kenosha, which is experiencing unrest after the police shooting that paralyzed Jacob Blake. So the governor of Wisconsin asked him to stay the fuck home. The mayor asked him to stay the fuck home because they said, hey, you showing up is probably going to inflame tensions. But that's not how Trump gets there. Because in his mind, conflict is a good thing. Right? In his mind, he wants to scare the shit out of white people. And how do you do that? By painting the whole country is mired in civil unrest. Well, here's what we're really mired in. It's called a fucking pandemic. And I would argue, if we took care of the pandemic, the protest in Portland, Kenosha, or anywhere else in the fucking country, that shit would pretty much die down. It's the virus, dummy. But, hey, what do I know? So anyway, so back to this dude, Kyle Rittenhouse, who thinks of himself as like the modern day, like, I don't even know, like the modern day white supremacist version of the Punisher. I don't get it. But he's, you know, killing folk. People don't know whether he's a hero or he's a criminal, although he is behind bars. So I'm assuming he would be a criminal. But you know, this is white America, so white America has got a different view. The president is not going to, again, weigh in on that. White House Press Secretary Kylie McEnany said when asked whether Trump would condemn Rittenhouse's actions. You can ask him this evening. He may weigh in in the future, but at this point, he's not weighing into that. Now, let's just be honest here. This is murder. <laughs> We're not asking him like what his thoughts are on like social security or asking him, you know, what he thinks about uh relationships with Belarus. We're just simply saying, hey, this dude killed people. Are you okay with that? And he can't just come out and be like, nah, killing people, not cool. That's too hard for him to articulate when asked. You know why? Because this motherfucker who killed these people is a Trump supporter. So it's kind of like very hard for him. I mean, this is, goes back to Charlottesville. This is go back. This goes back further than that. This goes back to how he treated people in his apartments. This dude doesn't give a fuck about black people. He never has. He never will. It's self-evident. But it plays itself out as it relates to politics. And here's an instance 
where again, the shooter didn't even kill any black people. But because the shooter killed Black Lives Matter protesters, this dude, who is the president of the United States of America, who is alleged the law and order president, cannot conceive of a concept of applying the law to someone who shot two people on video. You can see the video. (laughs) It's not, again, amazing stuff, but that's a real thing that's happening as it relates to uh, the shoot and how Trump thinks about the shoot. So the last thing, you know, I want to kind of hit on here is what's really happening behind the scenes, right? So I can travel to Wisconsin and I can talk shit. You know, I can get on Twitter and I can, you know, you know, basically uh, suck the balls of every white militia group out there and get them all enthused. The president can do all that type of shit. But here's the problem. None of those things really address the pandemic. Right? We're over 180,000 people dead. At this rate, we'll easily be over, like, I think we'll be close to, and again, I'm not, it's not a thing of glee, but I, I would say conservatively, we'll be at 250 by the time of the election. Conservatively. And that's just because I can do simple math. But here's another person who has some math of their own. What are President Trump's top medical advisors urging the White House to embrace a controversial controversial herd immunity strategy to combat the pandemic, which would entail allowing the coronavirus to spread through most of the population to quickly build resistance to the virus while taking steps to protect those in nursing homes and other vulnerable populations, according to five people familiar with the discussions. So let me just level set what they're really saying here. Herd immunity, I don't, like, that's just jargon. What they're really saying is, let's just give up. Let's not put on any fucking masks. Let's not do any social distancing. Let's literally behave as though we are not in a pandemic when we are in a pandemic and hope for some reason that enough of us will become immune and the other ones who die, well, fuck it. They're just dead. So the administration has already begun to implement some of these policies along these lines, according to current and former officials, as well as experts, particularly when it regard to testing, right? So remember the slowdown of testing? Under herd immunity, you don't need, it's like basically fuck the test. It's basically fuck it. And that's, like, that's basically what Donald Trump is decided to do now. We have gotten to the point in the calendar where we've just given up, and now we think magically herd immunity will save us. The approach's chief uh, proponent is Scott Atlas. Scott Atlas is a great name. He's a neurologist for the Stanford, from, from Stanford's conservative Hoover Institution. Surprise, surprise. It's a conservative institution who joined the White House earlier this month earlier this month as a pandemic advisor. He has advocated that the United States adopt the same model as Sweden, 
to respond to the pandemic. Now, let's just, just think about this for a second. We're the United States of America. We are the lone superpower in the world. And the thought process now is that we will now follow the policies and procedures of fucking Sweden? What the fuck? Do, like, outside of chocolate, what, what are the Swedes? Are they called Swedes? I don't know what the fuck these motherfuckers are called. What have they done? What have they done for you to be like, yo, the Swedes are on that shit. Like, get out of here. No. Sweden's handling of the pandemic has been heavily criticized by public health officials and infectious disease experts as reckless. The country has amongst the highest infections and death rates in the world. It also hasn't escaped the deep economic problems resulting from the pandemic. So let's just recap this for a second. We are in a pandemic. 180,000 people are dead. And the president of the United States is contemplating seriously employing a strategy that is being utilized by Sweden. A country, I don't even know how fuck, I, I literally don't even know how big Sweden is. But I do know this. They're not doing well as it relates to the pandemic. So I don't know why we would be like Sweden has the recipe for success when they literally have shit the bet. But for whatever reason, Sweden is what we need to be doing. Sweden's approach has gained support among some conservatives who argue that social distancing restrictions are crushing the economy and infringing on people's liberties. Yo, yo, white people, are you fucking nuts? Are you fucking nuts? Look at the infection rates at the colleges where these motherfuckers are not obeying social distancing. Think about how that will play out if the rest of the country just gave up. Fuck it. 20 to 30% of us may die, but fuck it. And let me just... This other thing about herd immunity, and I want to make sure that people understand this. Just because you are exposed to the disease does not mean you can track the disease and say, all right, I contracted it, all right, I got over it, I recovered, now I'm good. Now I can't be infected again. That's not true. That's not a true statement. Being infected once does not preclude you from being infected again. So this concept is just stupid. But see, if I lead the news with stories about fucking riding in the streets of Portland, riding in the streets in Wisconsin, people will get distracted from the fact that there's a fucking riot going on all across the United States of America, and it's called COVID-19, motherfucker. 
anyways, happy Monday to you, the audience. Um, I looked today on the newspapers. I did not realize this, that the VMAs happened last night. Uh, it used to be something, you know, back in the day, I used to watch it. I don't, I don't think I've seen it. Last time I think I've seen any of it was when uh, Kanye West got up on stage after drinking a bottle of Hennessy and grabbed the award from Taylor Swift and said it should really go to Beyonce. And that was some magical shit. Um, but that's about it. Like, I haven't watched any of it. Um, I just looked at some of the coverage today. Looked like a whole bunch of white people won. And, you know, kudos to white people. I think there was a K-pop band that won some shit. I think uh, Lady Gaga won some shit. And I don't even, I mean, again, I don't know any of these songs. So I couldn't tell you whether these songs are good or bad, but I've never fucking heard any of it. And I believe, quite frankly, it's not targeted towards me. This is targeted towards, like, white people, like, I guess, 12 to 16-year-old girls. I don't know who fucking, I don't know. I don't know, and, and, and homosexuals. Nothing wrong with homosexuals, but I, that's what it seems to be targeted. You know, I look at some of these outfits some of these people were wearing. But uh, Lady Gaga won. Um, I believe The Weeknd won. Uh, I don't know who the rest of these motherfuckers are. But, you know, what it really made me realize is like, you know, and I guess some of the performers tried to say some shit about, you know, hey, what's going on and social injustice, whatever. But it's just like, you know, it's hard to give a fuck. It's hard to give a fuck about any of this when you know in the back of your mind you least have to acknowledge that, number one, there's a racist in the White House that is literally concocting ways for your demise. And number two, there's a raging pandemic that is also looking out for your demise. These are real things. So we can distract ourselves with, you know, football, basketball, VMAs, or whatever the fuck else we want to distract ourselves with. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't. Because who the fuck wants to think about this bullshit all the time? But the reality is, doesn't matter how much you distract yourself, this shit is still going on. And you have a president that refuses to say whether someone who commits murder is a bad person. Yo, as always, I want to uh, wish the audience nothing but well wishes. I want you to stay safe, stay situated, stay calm, and most of all, stay positive. Peace.